right. Well, uh, good morning again. Good morning again. Isn't it a beautiful day out here? I love the breeze. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for the breeze. And thank you, Lord, for the sun. Man, it's, it, is, it is great to have the sun. I think we're en- going to end up getting our, our summer and fall this, uh, this season. It looks like uh, we're going to be up for a heat wave coming up soon here. But uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to look at God's Word with, with you this morning. And um, we've been in Genesis, the book of Genesis, uh, and today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 8. So if you, uh, obviously we don't have a screen here, so if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can feel free to follow along as, as uh, there's a, a good bit of Scripture I want to read this morning. In chapter 8... Um, I'm going to start with verse 1 and just reading this. So if you'd like to follow along with me, I'm in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, The waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives were with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Amen. This is chapter 8. Why don't we pray? So, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. That you would give me grace, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, Lord, what you'd have us to to know today from your word, Lord, and from this passage in Genesis. Lord, I thank you that your word, it always speaks, Lord, to this, to the to the situation at hand. So, Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking to hearts today. Lord, whatever... Uh, whatever the situations are, Lord, whatever the uh, the trials, the burdens, the the cares, Lord, the things that that weigh on our minds, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today, and Lord, give grace to the speaker and the hearer in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So we're in chapter eight, and one thing I want us to see from this passage is actually found in the first phrase of the first verse in chapter 8. And that phrase is this. says, But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And this is not to say that God had forgotten Noah. For God is omniscient, and he knows all things. But the idea of God's remembrance is different than how we usually understand the word. Sidney Gradanus, in his commentary titled Preaching Christ from Genesis, said this, When God remembers someone, he remembers in order to save. Catch that this morning. God remembered Noah because he had made covenant with him. And when God remembers, he is acting upon a previous commitment as a covenant keeper. Amen? So God remembered Noah. And God remembered not only Noah, but all the animals that were with him in the ark. And so I want us to catch something this morning, that when God remembers someone, he remembers in order to save. The fact of God remembering Noah carries with it the idea that God is acting to make provision for Noah. And this reminded me of when Jesus was on the cross and that thief next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, don't just recall to mind that I was here in some passive sense of the word, but he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, make provision for me. Save me. The Lord remembered Noah. So as we continue reading here in verse 3 and following, I think it's helpful to notice that the floodwaters don't immediately dry up. I can imagine Noah, as the scripture says, he was a man who walked with God. 
was probably praying more than ever during those 150-plus days on the ark. I mean, can you imagine Noah out there on the, on the waters? Lord, when is this going to end? When are the waters going to go down? You said you would save us. You said you'd preserve us. I mean, the Lord had told Noah, it says in the scripture in earlier chapters, that it would rain 40 days and nights. But there's no indication, at least that I'm aware of, that Noah knew exactly how long he'd be on that ark. And sometimes when we cry out to God, his answer is immediate. I mean, think of the disciples when they were caught in that wild storm on on the sea. And they cry out to Jesus, and he speaks to the storm and says, Peace, be still. And immediately the wind and the waves ceased. And the answer came. But sometimes the answer doesn't come immediately. It may come gradually. And we wonder why the Lord waits as long as he does. Why does the Lord wait so long in my life to hear my cries and to answer my prayers? Have you ever wondered that? And so I think in in chapter 8 here, there's an encouragement here for us. Perhaps you're believing God for something and you've been praying and you've been crying out, you've been asking. Don't give up. Keep asking, keep praying, keep waiting on the Lord. He hears you. He remembers you. And he will answer. Perhaps the answer is already in motion. But as it relates to waiting on God and and delayed answers, one Bible teacher said this. He said, sometimes God waits in order to prove or to exercise and to mature the faith of his people. God silently strengthens us with strength in the inner man, and we learn to grow in grace in times of his silence, in times of his seeming withdrawal, as we learn to wait on him. Because even as he seems to push us away with one hand, he is drawing us with the other to lean hard on him. Amen? So throughout this narrative of the flood, I think it's remarkable how many parallels that can be drawn from the creation story of Genesis 1. But here in chapter 8, the narrator is seeking to show that God is making a new beginning with Noah and all who were with him in the ark. God reigns in the destructive waters by closing the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens. And gradually the waters subside as they did in Genesis 1, and a cleansed creation rises from the chaos. The ark comes to rest in a mountainous area that was called Ararat. You know, I used to think, well, maybe it's a mountain called Mount Ararat. But really, the, uh, this term Ararat refers to a, a mountainous area, a region. Um, and I remember uh, that we were pretty close to that region uh, when I used to travel with Isaiah 6 and, and Derek. And we, we went uh, over to the nation of Turkey. And uh, we were over there and, and driving through the country. And, and one of the hosts that was hosting us, one of the missionaries, said, yeah, just about a few miles that way. That's where, uh, that's where uh, the mountains of Ararat were. And, and I said, wow, that's, 
it's really something. We're we're in that area, and uh, but it's interesting because this this word Ararat in Hebrew actually means the curse is reversed. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Isn't that something? The curse is reversed. <laughs> and I think this is especially significant when we see the ark as being a picture or a foreshadowing of Christ. Because we know that where Christ is, we have the promise that there the curse will ultimately be reversed. Amen? So as we've been studying through this passage over the last couple of weeks with Caleb taking us through chapter 7 last week, I've been personally impacted by the gospel pattern that we see in the story of the flood. Caleb spoke last week of how the story of the flood is for us a picture, an illustration of the promise that our salvation is not so much a salvation in spite of judgment or a salvation instead of judgment, but rather it's a salvation through judgment. The water, which is a means of judgment for the unbelieving world, is at the same time the means of salvation for those who believed him. And again, Sidney Gradanis speaks well to this idea that there is in this passage, what seems to be a dual theme in this story of God's judgment and God's salvation. But in reality, it is a unified theme of salvation through judgment. And Sidney says this, this narrative seems to have a dual theme. God judges all flesh with a flood and God saves a remnant from the flood. And he continues, I used to think of the flood as pure judgment, Floods kill even today. Floods are disasters, total natural evil. But then I noticed that the Apostle Peter sees the flood as a type of baptism. The waters of the flood cleansed the earth of evil. And then I discovered that God's intention to blot out from the earth is the same verb used by the psalmist in asking God to blot out his iniquities. So the flood is... Yes, it is indeed God's judgment. But its purpose is to cleanse the earth and make a new start. And so God would establish a covenant of preservation with Noah. God says to Noah in in verse 16 and 17 here of chapter 8, he says, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, and bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So in a sense... Adam, or I'm sorry, in a sense, Noah here is a new Adam in a, in a renewed creation. I mean, we're, it's like, it's almost as if we're back in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. The curse has been reversed and God is making a new beginning with the seed of the woman. But we know, however, from last week's sermon that Noah was not the promised seed who would bring that complete fulfillment of God's purposes Because sin went into the ark with Noah. And not long after he came out from the ark, sin would once again rear its ugly head. 
So we see in this passage a reversing of the curse to a certain extent. But even as wonderful as that was, there is even better news for us today. You see, God has established a new covenant with the truer and the better Noah, who is Jesus Christ, our last Adam. And Christ, through his work on Calvary, has brought about a complete and total reversing of the curse that will culminate in a holy city called the New Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven, as it says in Revelation 21. You know, when Mike shared that verse this morning, I said, Mike, you're, I thought, man, did he look at my notes? <laughs> but thank God, the Holy Spirit is faithful. And isn't this good news? That through Christ and his work on Calvary, a total and complete reversing of the curse. And it, it's going to culminate one day in that holy city called the New Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven And it says right here in chapter 21, it says, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Praise God. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then in verse 3 of the next chapter in Revelation, what does it say? It says in verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that day. Author Chad Bird, he wrote a wonderful article entitled The Gospel According to Noah. And he said something in that article that I wanted to share with you today that I think ties in so well with this chapter. Chad Bird says this in his article, It was a true and better Noah, wet with Jordan's water, upon whom the Spirit's dove landed, marking him the true man of rest. He is the one who finally fulfills Lamech's messianic hopes. For he comes to fulfill all righteousness for Lamech. That was Noah's father. He comes to fulfill all righteousness for Noah, for you, and for me. But his way is not a mere rerun of the old. For if Noah, had, if Noah condemned the world, as it says in Hebrews 11... Then Christ was condemned for the world. In the Jordan, Christ stepped into the place of what so many children's books call bad people, people like you and me, people like us. And the water that trickled off his back in the Jordan foreshadowed a greater baptism with which he was to be baptized the baptism in which the world's sins were poured out upon him, in which he was flooded with divine wrath. The truer and the better Noah. For our sake he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so it was that the true and the better Noah became on the cross the old and unbelieving world precisely in order that you and I might be pulled from the waters of death and planted within the ark of his resurrected body. For as the one just man, Noah, exited the ark after the flood, so the one just man, Christ, exited the ark of his tomb after the baptismal flood of crucifixion. Christ lived again, the new Adam who had come to undo the doing of the old Adam and to regenesis the world in the new creation of his church. And today his side is open so that you can enter therein and find life. Amen? You see, the fact that the ark made it all the way through the flood illustrates the reliability and the finality of Christ's sufferings to bring us all the way through to a completely new life and a total reversal of the curse. I don't know about you, but that's, a, that's good news. Second Corinthians in chapter 5, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Praise God. So before we move on to this last section of this chapter, this passage, I just want to say a word or two regarding the significance of believers' baptism. As I made reference earlier to how the flood is actually a type of baptism or a picture of baptism. And so the apostle uh, Peter, I, I want to look just for a moment at what the Apostle Peter said regarding the ark and the flood is I think we can gain insight into how our baptism into Christ corresponds to this. The Apostle writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He continues in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is Peter saying here? Well, he's not saying that the physical act of going underwater in a lake or a, a river or a pool is going to save you. He says, we're not saved. That's in fact what he says here. We're not saved through an activity that removes dirt from the body. In other words, going underwater for a second or two. But he says, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, in other words, we are saved only by faith in Christ, his death and his resurrection. And when we are baptized as believers, we are making a statement 
that illustrates to the world and to those around us that we believe. We identify with Christ and are united to him in his death and his resurrection. And so baptism, when we, when we are baptized, we are testifying that we believe that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And baptism is a beautiful illustration of what faith in Christ actually means. Because in Romans 6, in verse 3 here, I want to read this. I love this passage. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And that's what Mike referenced this morning. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Praise the Lord. So the story of the flood, and specifically this passage here in chapter 8, should encourage us that our faith in Christ is not in vain. Our faith in Christ is not insufficient. It will always be enough to bring us through all the way to the end. The ark that was brought safely through the flood it foreshadowed that Christ is reliable. If you place all your bets on him, he's not going to let you down. For it says here that he is able to save, in the scriptures it says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, he's able to save you to the uttermost. What does that mean? He's able to save you completely all the way through. You're not going to need something else along the way. It's not Jesus and. You know, as we've preached here so often at Grace Life, it's not Jesus plus, but it's Jesus only. He is able to save completely. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. You see, whoever believes in him, the scripture says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we come to the end of chapter 8 where Noah builds an altar and he offers the burnt offering. And so as we pick up here in verse 21, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
Now, as we read this section here in chapter 8, does it not seem a bit strange to you? Because earlier in chapter 6 of Genesis, in verse 5, it says the same thing. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his heart, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And God says back in chapter 6, he says, I'm, I'm, therefore, you know, my paraphrase, I'm going to wipe them out. He says, I'm going to blot out man whom I made, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And so we have this before and after response of God to the same condition of man. I mean, this, this one unchanging constant here in the before and after is that what, what hasn't changed? The inclination of man's heart was only evil continually. Think about that. But why? Why the change in how God responds to this? Why does he say on the one hand, in response to this condition of man, that our every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, why does he say on the one hand that I'll blot out man in chapter 6? But then on the other hand, he says... Here in chapter 8, he says, never again, never again will I blot out man whom I've created from the, face of the land, from the face of the land. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why? Why the change? And I think the answer lies in the phrase that's immediately preceding this in chapter 8. It says, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. You see, it was not so much the altar and the burnt offering itself, but it was what that offering pointed to that was so significant as to why God could say, Never again. You see, on the cross, when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the full weight of wrath, the punishment that was deserved for the evil intentions of man's heart. And there on the cross, justice was fully and forever satisfied. As Jesus bore the curse for you and for me, God's love was at the very same time most clearly and fully expressed. And that, I believe, is why God could say, never again. Amen? Amen.